The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. My name is Darren Smith, the senior pastor at Tower View Baptist Church. And many of you are probably watching this from home uh, as you are inside under stay-at-home orders during the coronavirus outbreak. Thank you for joining us. Uh, We're preaching this pre-recorded today because of the... uh, uh, desire for you to be able to watch this without lag time or interruption from your internet. And so thank you so much for joining us. Uh, our website is towerviewkc.com. Tower- decided to do this. We've been preaching through the book of Ezekiel for almost uh, 11, 12 weeks now. And in light of uh, the things around the world, we just thought, you know, let's try something different with some questions that you may be asking. Some questions that I know our church members who are also watching this and welcome Tower View family as we go through this time. And so we've called this James Street Level Faith. James Street Level level faith. And as we go through this time, we're going to be going through this for several weeks. We're just taking a few verses at a time. And as a church, we believe that preaching God's word in its entirety, verse by verse, is the best thing we can do. I mean, let's be honest, who likes to have someone jump in their conversation and interrupt it when they don't know the context of the conversation? That's how gossip gets started. That's how rumors get started. We're not going to go there or do that. So today's sermon is entitled, Why Me, Lord? Why Now? You know, it's, it's kind of like a lot of us are kind of like that lady or guy who goes to the gym. I know the gyms are closed right now, but everything about what this particular person, and maybe you know someone like this, maybe you are this person, says they are going for a killer workout. I mean, they wear their typical stuff. They got the headband, headband around their head. They got the, the, the sweat things on their arms. They're, they're, they got the music in, their, their AirPods in. They have the gym clothes. They got the cool water bottle. And they step into the area. They look around and everyone's kind of looking at them thinking, wow, do we have a professional athlete in our midst? I mean, what's going on here? And, and all of a sudden they grab the dumbbells. And they go to the next bench, and you're thinking, wow, what is this person going to do? And they end up, and they they sit on the bench, and they lift the weights a couple times. And then they scream out, "Woo! that's enough for me today. I'm beat. And everyone's kind of confused because this person is dressed for gym success, dressed for uh, health success. But they look the part, but they were not truly coming to the gym for the workout. They were coming for the show. And you know what? It's also true in our lives as well. Sometimes that's how we live our lives spiritually. We live our lives spiritually in such a way that we end up putting on a show. We we go through the motions. we, We deal with things as they come. We say the right religious things. But often we're just there because that's what we're supposed to do. Like that man or woman who goes to the gym 
puts on the part, but doesn't truly know what it is to do and, and to be healthy. And so when we're building our physical bodies, we have to be intentional with what we're doing. We can't just lift a few weights here or there in the form of pumping weights or running on the treadmill or participating in activities. We have to constantly, don't we, constantly be about the business of doing the work that we're called to do. And workouts involve sweat, heavy breathing, and perspiration because something in is being developed. And so it is with us spiritually. God allows trials and toughness to put us in gym situations, if you will. Just like the father did with the son, so too the father creates a workout situation that includes difficulty that we must walk through. And God figures we won't go voluntarily to the spiritual gym. So he brings the gym to us. And he gives us tough situations, cross bearing situations and difficult times and they serve as a place of christian growth for us kind of sounds like today doesn't it with what's going on in our world you know psalm 23 and verse 4 a very familiar verse for many of you says even though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death i will fear no evil for you are with me your rod and your staff they comfort me if you're like me this morning and you could ask one question of the lord maybe it's this question Lord, why have you put me and our world and our family and our job and our schools and our churches, why have you done this to us right now? And if there's a riddle of your faith, your walk with God, that you could present to him, perhaps that's the question you would ask. Or maybe you don't understand why life has been difficult even before this coronavirus. And maybe you're wondering why this virus has seemingly sucked the life out of all of us, including our daily lives and our daily routines. Maybe that's the question you would ask of God. Or perhaps you think these moments in life where you lack wisdom and you go to the Lord and you don't understand why such things have happened. Lord, if you would just tell me why, then I would be more inclined to follow you wherever you take me in this world. Or maybe you recognize there's way too much anger in your life, that you experience way too much conflict and you don't understand why. Maybe that's what you'd throw at God in asking why he put you through certain things. Or maybe you would ask why, God, you're sovereign, you're in control, you're supposed to have a plan and, and you're supposed to have this thing figured out. Why is life so tough? Or maybe you really struggle with getting the best out of God's word, especially in a time like this when you can't fellowship regularly. And you love the preaching of the word, but when you open up the Bible yourself, you find it dry and empty and hard to understand. Or maybe there's moments where you feel like the most insignificant, unrecognized member of the body of Christ to such a degree that you feel you could slip in and slip out without much notice. And maybe you wonder, God, why do I even go to church? Why even care? Because, Lord, these people don't seem to care about me. Or maybe you pray and you say, God, why did this happen? Or God, I prayed about this. You told me to pray. I did it. And you didn't answer how I wanted it. Why God? So why have I proposed all these questions to you? Because these are exactly the questions that James looks at. The genius of the book of James is that we're about to look at is not the theology of it, not the study of God. The book of Romans covers that. But it's, it's, it's faith at street level. It hits you in the most practical ways in your life, especially in a time this unprecedented time that we're seeing in our lives. In all of, uh, of the confusion, in all the messiness, in all the struggles, there's not a person who's watching this or who will hear this who hasn't struggled with their faith in some way, especially, again, in times like these. 
And the message of James is that the gospel is so expansive and so sturdy and the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ is so powerful that we need not avoid the hard issues of life. We can talk about these things. We can look at them in the face and we don't need to run away from hard questions. And the question today is, Lord, why me? Why now? There's a real way in which James is a portrait of a struggle, the struggle of a faith in this broken and fallen world. And that's why our big idea, our our thesis, our understanding of this short four verses is this, is that trials, hard times are God's unannounced exams to see how we are doing in the school of faith. Let me say that again. Trials are God's unannounced exams to see how we are doing in the school of faith. You know, just because we don't see a reason why God allows one to evil and suffering doesn't mean there isn't one. You know, Job never saw why he suffered, but he saw God. And for him and for us too, that should be enough. If God allowed the perfect man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, the risen Savior to suffer terribly, why would we think something like that could never happen to us? Hashtag coronavirus or COVID-19. If God is real, why do we assume he'll perfectly align with our views? I mean, if he never challenges our assumptions, do we even have the biblical biblical God? We should expect God to challenge us on what we think is right somewhere in our lives. And as we do that, it's going to affect us economically, it's going to affect us socially, and it's going to affect us personally. And we need to hear that today. When we suffer, the primary question is not, why is this happening to me? But what does God have for me in this? So this morning, seven things that do not change in difficult times. When we're asking that question, Lord, why me? Why now? Seven things that don't change in difficult times. The first one is your spiritual identity. James is going to share that with us. Your Lord does not change. Secondly, your need for a spiritual family, especially in difficult times, does not change. Your call to joy does not change. Your providential lot, your, your, your hand that God deals you, so to speak, does not change. Your sanctification, your growth in Christ of being more like Christ does not change during hard times. And finally, your call to endure and bear up under suffering does not change. Well, I want you to know that early church tradition ascribes this book to James, the brother of Jesus. And this was the very prominent view in the New Testament. But I also want you to remember that that James was the man who thought Jesus was crazy. Mark 3.21 tells us that that James and and Jesus' other siblings asked him, Are you out of your mind? Jesus, you really think you're the Son of God? Are you crazy? So James comes at this from a very unique perspective. He was probably converted, probably saved after Jesus died. This James who wrote the book became the leader of the book of uh, or the, the group at Jerusalem, the church at Jerusalem. And he was the author of a famous letter in Acts 15, 13 through 29. But for one thing we know to be true, James has seen his brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, He's experienced the trials that came from bearing that name. And there were times he probably asked that same question, Lord, why me? Why now? But he's going to share with us seven things that don't change even when that happens. Let's read our text together this morning. And if you have a copy of God's word, your tablet, whatever you got, let's read James chapter one, verses one through four. And here it is, the word of the Lord. James, a servant or a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, and it's a delphoid, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance or steadfastness. 
and steadfastness or perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Let's pray together as we start looking at this. Why me? Why now? The street-level faith of James. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, we are grateful for your work in our lives. Thank you for technology like this, Lord, when we cannot come together physically, but we can come together spiritually. Father, we pray the word is bold. We pray the text is clear. We pray the gospel is presented even clearer. Pray for those watching who know Jesus that you grow them. Pray for those without Jesus watching this that they would come to know the faith that we have, Lord, that impacts us at the most practical levels, not only here, but for all eternity. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We, we thank you for your son, Jesus, in, who may, in whose name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first thing I want you to see is seven things that do not change during these times is your spiritual identity, your spiritual identity. Now, if you look there at verse 1, James, he says, he's, he's making clear who he is, James, a servant of God. Again, James is writing this to a scattered group of Christians, probably mainly Jewish Christians, but I think there's some Gentiles probably in there as well. And he's writing this wonderful letter to those who've been dispersed or spread out because of persecution. And he's concerned about the kinds of attitudes and behaviors that are now creeping within the church. And as he comes to this letter, he writes it in a very practical way. Now, all scripture is practical. There are harder parts to understand. Uh, let's not forget that in, in 2 Peter 3, Peter says that Paul's language was, is hard to understand. Even Peter struggled at times with Paul. But there are difficult passages, but the Bible is, is God's word. It's inerrant. It's inspired. It's, it's, it's always available to us. It's It's sufficient. But it tells us here at a very practical level that James is a servant of God. Now, I want you just to stop and think about this. Romans 8 tells us that we know that we are Christians because the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are his children. So James comes and he identifies himself as James, a, a servant or a slave of God. Now, that's significant because this witness he bears, number one, is that his power in us is to do his power in us to do things that are no longer filthy rags. We are not just slaves, we are slaves to God. And Romans 8 argues that we're no longer slaves to sin, but again, we are slaves to God. And so James from the very get-go says the one thing that does not change when hard times come is who I am in Jesus Christ. I am his servant. I am his slave. I'm not Pinocchio on a string. I I, I have freedom. But he also gives us assurance that God cares for us, that God allows us to serve him. And as James writes this letter, he gets very practical because he says, look, he says, I am a servant of God and I'm coming to you, people I'm writing to, to tell you that even in your hard times, don't forget your position. Don't forget your identity. Don't forget who you are in Jesus Christ. And here's the key. To get to know God and his word, you no longer see yourself as a slave who doesn't know what his father is up to. You are, your slavery is over. But James tells you, you are his servant. Go do his will. When these hard times come, I, like you, James said, am serving the one God and the one true God who is our God and father. And what he tells them here is he tells them that, look, in the midst of your suffering. In the midst of your suffering, don't forget your position. 
Christian, as we go through these days and we look across the landscape and we think, well, I can't go to church. You know, I can't even hug my neighbor. You know, I, I'm not supposed to give him a high five, give him an air high five or an elbow bump, whatever you got. Social distance. I mean, who would have thought of that three weeks ago in the beginning of March? There's a lot of things that have changed. But don't think just because you cannot get around and do the things you can't do anymore that God has done using you. In your hardest times is often when God will use you. Have you prayed, Lord, what is it about me and about my position and about this time that I can be used? For some of you, and you're doing it right now, it's going to be using your spiritual platform on Facebook or Instagram or social media, whatever you have, to share Jesus Christ. People are on their phones more now than ever. I mean, we used to joke about people doing that. You know, at restaurants, they'd be texting each other, and you get five teenagers in a room. They don't talk except they text each other and the phones, and they giggle every now and then. But if you ask God, Lord, James said that his spiritual identity didn't change. His mission didn't change. Have you asked God, Lord, what is it in this time that you want to use me to do? Have you considered just writing letters? As of right now, that's still an okay thing to do. Have you considered writing letters to someone? Have you considered praying for people in a certain way that you've never prayed for them before? Even if you message your neighbor and say, hey, how can I pray for you? Think about this. You know, James at times was under such persecution. They couldn't get out and preach in the streets like they wanted to for fear of death. They had to be creative. And we don't know all that they did, but I guarantee you that they always stuck to this. My identity is in Jesus Christ. Why me, Lord? Why now? I don't know. But one thing I do know is your security is in Christ, and that is what matters most. So he says the first thing that doesn't change is your spiritual identity. Notice the second part of verse 2 there. He says the second thing that doesn't change in hard times is, is your Lord, is your Lord. He says, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this banner flies over everyone who believes in Jesus. It's not the stars and stripes, but it's the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. If, if James is the Lord's brother, we need to remember that he is saying something grand here. He's saying, I knew him as a kid. I saw him. I hated him probably at times because he was literally perfect. You know, haven't you ever had a sibling like that? They never seem to get in trouble because they always, you know, they were the goody two shoes or whatever. I'm, you know, Jesus was sinless. Can you imagine being his brother? Imagine being his sibling. Yet James comes here and says, I'm not only a servant of this God, I trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other Lord. He is the final prophet, so we should obey his word. He is the ultimate priest, so we're to trust in his intercession, his go-between for us. Jesus is the final lamb, so we trust in his sacrifice. Jesus is the good shepherd, so we follow his lead. Jesus is the conquering lion, so we fear his roar. And Jesus is the eternal king that every knee shall bow between, every tongue confess, whether on the earth or under the earth, that he alone is Lord. Buddha's dead, Muhammad's dead, Confucius is dead. This will probably get Facebook to stop our video right now. But only Jesus Christ lives today. And you need to remember that in your hard times. Your Lord does not change. And as he puts in here that he is of the Lord Jesus Christ, I, don't forget that. Don't miss that preposition. He's of the Lord Jesus Christ. James did not save himself. The Lord Jesus Christ saved him. When James could do nothing to forgive his sin through the sacrificial laws of the Old Testament, his physical brother, but more so his Lord, saved him. And remind us, it is imperative that we remember not only our spiritual standing, that we are servants 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that doesn't change in hard or good times. But we need to remember that he is our Lord. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And I am the Lord God who was, who is, and who is to come. Friend, today, remember in your suffering, the weather changes, the government changes, the coronavirus restrictions change every day. Your body changes, but have hope. Your Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of all, King of kings, does not change. What an encouragement that should be for your faith in these times. Why, Lord, is this happening? I don't know all the time. But he says, first, your spiritual identity doesn't change. And second, your Lord does not change. Notice verse, the end of verse 3, though, the very end of, or excuse me, the end of verse 1, the third thing that doesn't change is your need for a spiritual family. Your need for a spiritual family. And as we come to this time and we look at these things, I just want you to remember that, that this does not change. Had a little computer technical difficulty there. We're back. And uh, thank you for your grace as we muddle through this together. But notice the end of verse 1. He says, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's writing this letter. He says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. He's writing, of course, to Christians, probably conservative Jews who became believers in the Lord Jesus. However, he doesn't speak to them as individual Christians. He doesn't speak to them as lone ranger Christians. He doesn't speak to them as those who checkmark the box, become a Christian, but never assemble together. He writes to them as the 12 tribes in dispersion. He writes to them as a family unit. Christian, I want you to understand that being a part of a universal church, that is being united with all believers across all locations and all time, does not mean that you have a cop-out never to assemble with those in the name of Jesus. Now, let's be honest. Let's be real. We can't do that right now because of, uh, of the coronavirus, and we're trying to be good neighbors and love our neighbors, and, and, and we're not under persecution. We're not being told we can't meet, but because we love our neighbor, we're going to stay out of our, our churches for now so we don't pass on things to get people sick. But I want you to know God has given us this internet thing in a time to, to, to get a hold of people. Have you called someone? Have you FaceTimed someone this week or Skyped or video chatted? Have you sent someone a message, a text message, a phone call? Have you considered how even in this time you can be part of the body of Christ? But don't miss this. James was in the midst of hard times, but he says, he doesn't say go off and hold yourself up in a cave somewhere. He says stay connected to the body. Stay connected to your spiritual family. Look, to imply that you can be of a greater community without other Christians is to imply that you yourself are greater than every other Christian. It's not biblical. Every letter in the New Testament assumes Christians are assembling together as often and as best they can. The letters themselves in the New Testament always write to a church or a group of Christians. And so here we see that we are called to assemble together. Look, I, I said this on Facebook Live the other day, but we're looking forward to the day we can partake together in the Lord's Supper. We're looking forward to the day when we can have a big potluck without fear of passing on the coronavirus. We're looking forward to that time. Friends, hang on. But don't, after this day, and, and, and this has been a fear of many pastors, that you know we get through this coronavirus and you're watching this at home in the comfort of your home, uh, probably less formally dressed than you usually are, maybe in your PJs. Hopefully, uh, something like that. 
But don't let convenience of online church, even in these days when we can't assemble, become your motto after this time. You need to assemble physically. You need to get together with other Christians when we're allowed and can do that safely in the coming days. But as we have in these days, he just reminds us that don't chuck out the church with the bathwater, so to speak. But here is the point. To prepare for suffering, you need to be connected to those who are suffering. Have you reached out to other Christians? Don't isolate yourself. This doesn't change even when hard times come. So he tells them your spiritual identity doesn't change. He tells them your Lord doesn't change. He tells them and he writes to the churches that your your need for spiritual connectedness within the body of Christ does not change. Even if James were here, he would, you know, even digitally, virtually at this point. But he gets into the meat of the argument here in verse 2. And he says, your call to joy does not change. Your call to joy. Notice the first part of verse 2. He says, consider it great joy, my brothers. Look, James doesn't dismiss hard times in this situation. He commands them literally here, roll it over in your mind, ponder it, reflect on it, meditate on it, consider it, talk about it. On what? The great joy that comes from having hard times. Whoa, say what? I mean, I've run marathons before, and and, uh, we have a member in our church who always sends a meme out before one of my races. He says, you know you don't have to run 26 miles, right? But that's kind of dumb. I mean, who does that stuff? And I get, you know, you get to mile 20 of 26 when the race actually begins and the pain is so much, the lactate is growing in your legs, you just hurt and you hurt and you hurt. And then you ask yourself that question, why did you pay $65 to sign up to run this thing? How dumb could that be? What joy is there? But you know, when you cross that finish line or when you, when you've, you do something substantial in your life that most people don't do and it's hard and you've had to work hard for it, there's a sense of joy, isn't there? There's a sense of relief too, for sure. There's also a sense of joy. And I think what James is telling us here is the mysterious link between miserable circumstances and a merry heart is counting. I mean, he tells us here, he says, consider it great joy. Literally count it great joy. Literally roll it great joy. The last thing we consider in times like this is that this is a deep joy. I mean, insert examples of not being joyful during the shutdown. For many of you, it's a job loss right now, right? Many of you are struggling just whether you're going to have a job or maybe you've lost your job or praying for you. Many of you have have people or maybe yourself work on the front lines with those who are affected by the coronavirus. What joy is there in that? Many of you are parents whose kids... Their school routine has been interrupted. Or, or you, you have an elderly uh, parent or, or, or sibling or family member who you can't see. Or there's someone in the hospital you love to visit, but you can't because of the restrictions. But our marching orders don't change just because hard times come. There is a joy available that the deepest grief cannot put out. There's no circumstance or person or virus that can take away the joy God gives. When you're suffering, it's okay to grieve and lick your wounds. While other worldviews would lead us to sit in the midst of life's joy for seeing the sorrows coming, Christianity empowers us to sit in the midst of the world's sorrows and taste joy. Lord, I don't understand why we're going through this, but help me see your hand in this. Lord, I don't like it. I don't want anything to do with it. But Father, please help me in everything that I do to point back to you. Lord, Father, help me. Too much focus on what you want and how you get it is not only burdensome to your faith, it will rob you of joy of experiencing all the good things God wants to give you in these days ahead. 
And lasting joy doesn't come from the pleasures of, of monetary or momentary situations. But it's the knowledge of God's presence that he reminds us that I'm with you. And even in this time, you can find the greatest joy even when folks around you want nothing to do with that. Have you counted these days as tough as they are as great joy? I mean, let's be honest. You know, in Egypt back in the, you know, several thousand years ago, God brought plagues on Egypt. And each of the plagues, you, you may know this, were, were to, against a certain God of Egyptian culture. God of rain, a God of sun, a God of crops, things that made their society and their lives go over. The engine of Egypt was put up against, and God took out many of those things. Isn't it interesting that God has taken away our entertainment, our sports, our economy? God has taken away many of the things that we considered to be of great joy to us. And I'm not a prophet or the son of the prophet, but it seems very clear that God is making a message known to us. That we find not our joy in these things, but have we found our joy in Him? Church as a whole, Tower View family, have we found our joy in the things that we can do as a church to make ourselves feel better and pat ourselves on the back? Or have we found joy in simply missing the fellowship that comes even during hard times? He says, count it joy. Your call to joy doesn't change even when hard times come. Number five, he tells us your identity doesn't change, your Lord doesn't change, your spiritual family and the, the necessary equipment, or not equipment, necessary uh, uh, connection to get to that family doesn't change, your call to joy. But number five, your providential lot, your providential lot does not change. In other words, God's going to bring hard times. Notice the first or second part of verse two. He says, when you encounter Trials of various kinds. Notice it doesn't say if. You wish he would say if, right? But he doesn't say if. You could hope for an escape clause. You know, as, as parents, we do that with our kids. You know, you do this. But if you do this, you can get away and not do the whole thing. I mean, can I say this to you? There's no if in this passage. It's a win. Your heavenly Father has decided after you came to Christ for you not to disappear and immediately arrive in glory. That's not a mistake. That's an intention. And there's a reason he has you here in this fallen world today. And the reason he has you here is that he wants you to be faithful to the task that he has called you to today. Now notice the word here. He says, when you meet trials of various kinds. James is speaking to people who are facing persecution, a particular kind of trial. And James wants us to understand that in some way, suffering and difficulty is the universal experience of every Christian everywhere. It's our lot. It's, our, it's the hand we're dealt. It's the plan he has for us. Or it could be those huge life-transforming difficulties where you say, my life will never be the same. You know, there are people today who, we have seniors who aren't graduating. We have athletes who aren't finishing their last years. We have people experiencing things across the board that are just routine in our society. that They're not going to get to do it. And we look at that and say, well, that God, why would you do that? Friends, I'm here to tell you, you need to understand that you can't separate your Savior from your trials. That even in the midst of losing things that we love so much, our Savior is trying to get our attention to say, hey, don't forget me. I am Lord of your life. Even in these hard times, I'm bringing you through. I'm with you. The theology of Scripture doesn't allow you to do anything else. In Acts 17, God is in careful control and details of our lives. He says that God chooses the exact place in Acts 17 where we would live and the exact length of our days and, yes, even what viruses come our way. 
Friend, God is in the middle of your trouble. It is your providential lot to walk with him through it. And you can never have a biblical view of Christianity and somehow put God outside your trouble. God is in your trouble, and so immediately it begs the question, why would God allow this kind of difficulty into the life of his children in that he says in a hundred ways, why? Why? God, why would this happen? And friend, I would argue that we just simply respond that he loves us so deeply and he loves us so fully that to not put us through these things would be the most unloving thing of all. But why? Couldn't he do something easier? I mean, couldn't he have made it just easier for us? Friend, we'll never know the hand of God in every situation, but like Job, we say, Lord, I bow my knee. I don't understand it all, but I trust that you're with me. I trust that you've brought me through this with intention, and therefore, whatever comes my way, you're enough for me, and I know that you will see me, you'll see us through, even if it means some very tough times ahead. So that's what he says. Your troubles are not going away. That does not change. But he goes on in verse 3, number 6. He says, not only do your troubles not change, but he says your sanctification doesn't change. Notice verse 3. He says, why do these come? Notice the word for, F-O-R there. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance. And he says, I mean, what a power-packed phrase that is. He says, for you know. He's speaking to people who he thinks should not be surprised about what's going to happen next. Look, if you've embraced the theology of the sovereignty of God, that God is in control, that he's got everything down, that means you've recognized the fact that you are not in control of your life. Have you gotten there yet? God is that you don't write your own story of existence. God does that. In fact, it should not be surprising to you that God is in the midst of your trouble and he's using it for some person that or purpose. That should not surprise you. And he says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, this is where it gets interesting because these difficulties are not just passing by the doorway of irrational fate. These are not just things that come about by some karma thing. Look, Christian, we don't believe in karma. We believe in a sovereign God. But what does that word mean? They're tests. What does that word testing mean? Now, don't think of exams. If you're watching this and you're a student, you probably don't have the same test you did even two weeks ago. Don't think of passing and failing. That's not kind of the test he's talking about here. The testing he's talking about here is a metaphor. And you may think, well, what is this man talking about? Well, stay with me for just a second. If you're a, 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 a metallurgist, you know, a person who mines a metal, you find an ore. You find something in an ore state, O-R-E, not Oreo. That, that always comes to mind. But you find something in an ore state. And an ore has an intrinsic problem. That problem is it has all sorts of imperfections. And there are imperfections in that metal that rob it of its strength and its beauty. It would make no sense whatsoever to mine a metal and leave it in its ore state. And I propose to you, if you're wearing jewelry as you watch this today, you're, you aren't really wearing one. Because ore is not very useful and not very attractive. And so what the metallurgist does, he must do something that's quite radical. He adds a catalytic agent and a powerful heat and liquefies that metal and boils out those imperfections so it reaches a higher state and a higher state of beauty. And friends, that's exactly what James is talking about. These trials that God brings your way are bringing your, your life for the purpose of refinement, for your sanctification. Allow yourself to be humbled in case you haven't realized that. 
is that your Redeemer looks at your here and now, and he sees you in remaining imperfection. And let me ask you that. Are you resisting that today? Don't. If you don't think those exist, go ask your wife, husband, how imperfect you are. Wife, if you don't think you're imperfect, go ask your husband. Children, go talk to your parents and ask them if you are imperfect. If your parents talk to your children. I mean, clearly, if you're able to reflect on the past week of this shutdown, you know that there were imperfections that were real to you. You didn't always say the right thing at home. You didn't always choose the right thing. You didn't always think the right thing. You didn't always do the right thing. And in a variety of ways this week, as we've been shut down here in Kansas City, you've demonstrated your need for refinement. Or to use the big word of verse 3, sanctification, to be more like Christ. But there's a particular character quality that God is building in you during this time. It's steadfastness or perseverance. These trials of life, these difficulties are meant to produce something specific in you. Steadfastness. Now steadfastness has two aspects to it. One is a firmness of purpose. And two is no matter what that purpose is going to come. Steadfastness is steadfastness because it's steadfastness. If you want to use James language. It's a fixed direction and a practical firmness that no matter what God brings into my life, he is building me closer to him by his grace to be more like him. God has chosen me to no longer live for the little purpose of my kingdom and begin to find joy in the living for his expansive kingdom and purposes that are part of being in his kingdom. Friend, I have no other thing to say except... When you get up in the morning, and, and you do get up in the morning, you should be absolutely excited during these coronavirus days. You're probably exhausted. You're probably wondering what the next step is. But you are part of the most significant work in the universe. You are being fashioned after the hand of Almighty God. And for us who need that reminder today, that is a reminder for all of us that we need to remember that God is fashioning us like his son. I have a reason for conducting my relationships in a certain way. I have a reason for using my money in a certain way. I have a reason for using my time and energy for a certain way. I have a reason for thinking certain things and desiring certain things and doing certain things. Because my purpose is what James tells me. That God is testing me to make me more steadfast. To make me more like him. So when these trials come, I'm not going to walk through them like someone sashaying down a fashion show runway. But I'm going to have a purpose. And if you're a believer, you should feel that way. That every word, every situation, every location, every relationship now has a wonderful practical purpose. The question is no longer, why God, why me right now? Jesus has called you to be part of what he's doing in every possible way of your life. And that is the wonderful calling. Even in hard times, you are not going to change the fact that God is making you more like him. Himself. And so that's what he's doing. The principle is this. God will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. Friends, that's what he's calling us to do today. That's what he's calling us to do. The final thing I want to share with you as we close is not only is he calling you to steadfastness, he's calling you to endure. Look at verse 4. He says, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
Now, as much as this passage is a huge comfort because we realize not one thing in our life is out of the careful control and shaping of God, this should also be a comfort to us. There's nothing in my life that is beyond the work of redemption. There's nothing in my life that moves beyond the huge arms of my Redeemer. And that's why he says in verse 4, let perseverance or let steadfastness have its full effect. Listen, as much as steadfastness is the work of grace by the Holy Spirit in our lives, it's something to which God calls you to. You see, it's only when I remain under the heat of the trials of the situations that I begin to receive the transforming grace that is the perfect purpose that God has brought for me in these times. Now, here's the temptation when we face difficulty. It's really this. First, I, at least in my own life, I begin to permit bad attitudes in my heart. Well, God, if you would just take this away, man, life would be so much easier. I could live for you, God, if you just removed this away from me. And I, 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 you know, I begin to question the goodness of God. God, if you loved me, why would you bring this to me? I begin to doubt his love. Am I really his? I mean, if he loved me, wouldn't he be better to me at this point? I begin to wonder if he's actually as good as the Bible says. And then I begin to be just irritated and impatient. And you know, when things are going well for us, and, and I think for many of us, even two weeks ago, we would say it was much better than what we find ourselves in today, at least humanly speaking. We want to kick something. We don't care what it is. We just want to beat something down, punch a wall, or in my case, go run 20 miles and, and get your anger out. There's probably more than one person who's put a hole in the wall at some point during this coronavirus just out of a burst of anger. Perhaps I give myself to envy. I begin to look at the life of someone else. Well, even in these hard times, they still have the blessing and I don't. I wonder why what they did to get on God's good side that they don't seem that much more holy than I am, yet they seem to have a much easier life. You see, those are not attitudes of joy that, that he's calling him to. I'm bringing God into the courtroom of my judgment and finding him to be unworthy. But those attitudes began to move into bad habits. You know, my prayer, my prayer just doesn't seem to be going anywhere. You might tell yourself, I wouldn't be going through what I'm going through, so I don't pray much anymore because God's not going to hear me anyway. This is what we say to ourselves, isn't it? And I begin to back away from daily reading of the Bible. I don't think it's helping me. I decide not to go maybe to uh, watch a video like this because, again, if God loves me, why wouldn't he take care of this? See what we're doing in those times because we've allowed ourselves to question the goodness of God and back away from the, the call of God to be joyful and to embrace the hard times. I'm backing away from the fixed direction and purpose that he's called me to. And what results in the long run is a level of coldness in my relationship with God that would have shocked me in the early days of my faith, but now has become normal. Maybe that's where you are right now. 